we're not trying to insult the play. everyone out there in podcast world and welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai. And I am Jacob Mann Christensen. We're thrilled you've decided to join us for another week and another conversation about a great play. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for tuning back in. We are going to be heading pretty much just straight in. We don't have any announcements this week. We just have to like hit straight into the script this week. It's a it's a start of the season still for us, but we're past the initial phases. (laughs) That is absolutely right. And this week's script is a sort of a continuation of what we've been doing in the first couple episodes of season five, which is just changing gears dramatically a lot script to script episode (laughs) one was fairview by jackie sibley's drury which is an experiment on theater's form and its relationship to the art very new very different kind of theatrical experience and then we talked about private lives by noel coward one of the oldest most well-known big comedies in theater and today we're turning the bend again and coming to just uh, the most standard kitchen sink psychological drama <laughs> you have ever encountered. <laughs> With some interesting, like, good passing of the torching on to the next kind of generation of kitchen sink dramas out there. We are talking today about The Humans by Stephen Karam. That is right. The Humans is a play that has been making the rounds everywhere for about the past five years if you have a regional professional house near you the likelihood that they've done the humans in the past five years is pretty high it had some great broadway runs it's a it's one of those plays that was talked about a lot especially a couple of years ago there's other plays that have come up that have changed the conversation a little bit but still an incredible play really excited to talk about it But before we do that, we do want to ask everybody who's listening to head on over to patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast. Again, patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast. That's where you can become a supporter of the show. We love to do this show. It's amazing. It's an awesome opportunity for us, but it's not a free opportunity. There are hosting fees, costs of buying scripts we can't get at our local library, a huge amount of time investment. So we're asking you to be a supporter of the show, which you can do on patreon.com. Dot com slash no script podcast. There's a couple of different tiers of support. The lowest is just $1 a month. But at one of those tiers, a higher tier than that, you become, we call it the producer level, where we're going to give you credit here on the show for your support. And this week, we're really excited to be able to do that again because we have another supporter at that level, Dr. Patricia Ralph. Some of you remember her from last season. She was our special special guest. She and I had a great conversation about Chekhov's The Seagull and she has become a supporter of the show in that way. We're so, so thankful for that support. That is incredible. Dr. Pat is an awesome person, and we're thrilled that she's chosen to support the show in that way. We do want to say that with the beginning of a new season, as well as all the craziness in the world, we're a little bit late in offering Dr. Pat that thank you. Uh, So we apologize for that, but we're here now, and that does not change our level of gratitude at all. So big thank you to Dr. Pat for becoming a supporter of the show. 
Everybody else, head on over to patreon.com slash podcast. If you're not a supporter yet, we really, really hope that you will be. You all are what allow the show to go forward. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yes, thank you to, again, thank you to all of our patrons over there. Thanks for making this show have more wheels to go on forward. So thank you all very much for that. Now, back to the script. This script is from 2016. I'll let Jackson do the rest of the context, but I'm going to steal from him this tidbit of it, which is that if you like the Pulitzer Prize, if you follow the winners from that, 2016 was the year that the groundbreaking, famous, will continue on into infinity, probably, musical by Lin-Manuel Miranda (laughs) Hamilton won the Pulitzer Prize. So we were talking before we started recording, poor Stephen (laughs) Karam. Right, right. (laughs) It's a tough year to run a, a great play like the humans up for the Pulitzer. It's true, yeah. But but he was uh, one of the one of the nominees for the Pulitzer that year, so so he was in, in an elite crew of folks. Um, as far as the productions go, uh, it premiered at the the Humans premiered at the American Theater Company in Chicago, Illinois, um, and uh, then it had its subsequent Broadway runs across a number of theaters. It opened off Broadway at the Laurel Pels Theater in 2015, um, and it had a limited run at the Roundabout Theater Company, which I believe, if I'm looking at the front of the script correctly was the the house that actually commissioned it um they were the ones who worked um in in close association with Stephen Karam around this play um it then transferred to Broadway at the Helen Hayes Theater and uh opened that production in February of 2016 and of course that was the year that it was nominated for a number of of Tonys and nominated for the Pulitzer Prize um it, it won uh, best play at the Tonys, and uh, yeah, that it's 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 then had a had a bit of a, a Broadway tour across America run, um, and it's been picked up by a lot of different regional houses as well because of its uh, it's 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 a family kitchen sink play, as we've said. It's it's got a great you know cast that you can can kind of whatever your community theater. Uh, actors are often you have the makeup of this cast um the difficulty as we will i'm sure talk about eventually is the way the stage is laid out but i won't steal that from jacob who i will turn to now for a bit of synopsis on the play yes the humans if the title is seems vague to you and doesn't communicate any information about what the play is about that's fair (laughs) it's just called the humans uh you could potentially retitle the play thanksgiving with the blakes This is a Thanksgiving (laughs) holiday play. The Blakes are a family with adult children now that have come together in one of the adult children's Manhattan duplex apartment for this Thanksgiving celebration. So Eric and Deidre are, Eric and Deidre Blake are the parents, the matriarch and patriarch of the family. And they live in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Yes, Scranton, made popular by The Office. And in fact, there's a <laughs> lovely series of interviews and things by Stephen Karam about kind of trying to redeem Scranton a little bit from The Office. Yeah. It's sort of become a butt of so many jokes because of shows like The Office. So he, anyway. They're from Scranton. That's where <laughs> Stephen Karam grew up. And um, they come to Manhattan because their daughter, Bridget, is living in an apartment in Manhattan with her new boyfriend, uh, or maybe not new, Richard. And so Bridget, Bridget and Richard live together in the apartment. 
Eric and Deidre, her parents, they bring Momo, who is Eric's mother, so Bridget's grandmother. And then also attending the Thanksgiving dinner is Amy, the other sister. This is Bridget's sister, Eric and Deidre's daughter. So they come together. The The play, we think from looking at it, I've never had the chance to see it, but from looking online, I think it runs about 90 minutes, and it's 90 minutes of stage time and 90 minutes of time in the play. There's no scene changes, no jumps in time, no breaks in the act. It's straight through. And it is, we've said several times, just a very standard psychological drama. There are family secrets. There are pains that these characters are bringing to the, the, the table. There are things that they struggle and fight against each other about. Um, each of the characters individually to run through will we'll save what Eric specifically has done that is sort of the major secret of the play for, for later, perhaps. But he's sort of carrying the weight of that. He's not been sleeping well lately. He's his back is hurting, things like that. Deidre is trying to lose some weight, and um, she also is hoping that her daughters will kind of turn their lives around in terms of their faith and come back to their Catholic faith. Uh, she's hoping that Bridget will actually get married to Richard instead of just moving in with him. Amy is recently broken up with a long-term girlfriend, and that is hugely painful for her. She's also been diagnosed with an, and I think she's had the disease for a while, an intestinal disease of some sort, but it has recently grown in severity to the point where she's going to have to have some pretty major surgery to remove part of her colon and is dealing with that. Um, Bridget is struggling to find work. She's an artist. She has a college degree in, I think it's music composition is sort of her field and has struggled to find any work even at the university level for that. So she's bartending and, and trying to make a living doing what she really wants. Her boyfriend, Richard is, uh, he's sort of recently restarted his life is, is his claim. He struggled for a long time with some mental illness and has kind of made it through that and come to the other side and is now in graduate school to become a social worker. All of these things come together in this apartment. And as Jackson teased, one of the major features of the play is that it takes place in a two-level duplex. And the play is supposed to be performed like dollhouse style, where you the both floors of the duplex are exposed at once. So there's an upper level to the home and a lower level to the home. And you play scenes on both levels simultaneously. There'll be a scene happening upstairs. There'll be a scene happening downstairs. And characters are talking, not trading off or anything. They're just, there's two scenes happening several times throughout the play. So there's that dollhouse feature to the set, which uh, does make it somewhat of a technical challenge to produce, I would imagine. Yeah, I would think for like small houses to try to to try to make a structural second floor <laughs> over that that covers the whole stage essentially, um, or at least that's what it's called for. It's not like there's a balcony to the second floor. It's meant to be wrapped up to in a staircase. So you're supposed to have a whole floor above the main main uh, stage set. So so that that's got to be a little bit of a technical challenge. But but what it does is it creates this really. Um, true to life scenario where you can have these conversations on two different levels where you get to see characters listening in on other characters that physically can't see each other because they're separated by a floor, but not that far apart up on top of the spiral staircase. So a lot of the, the action of revealing of these secrets of the characters happens around that, that spiral staircase and the upstairs downstairs nature of the apartment. Someone can listen in on what's going on from upstairs without anyone knowing that they are. A lot of the reviewing around the play has talked about it as being kind of a revival of some sort of naturalism. 
that it, it's you know it true it stays true to time it's got that unity of time where there's no breaks in the action no jumps forward in time it's 90 minutes of playing time 90 minutes in the lives of these characters slice of life it's got that going for it the characters lines are not you know, they're not especially eloquent or elevated in any way. It's very real language, very stumbling, overlapping family conversation, very high context conversation. And then as we've discussed, the idea that there are multiple scenes happening at any given time in this play on either level, and each level has a couple of rooms, and sometimes there's a scene happening in one room and another. The publishers and Stephen Karam have done a pretty good job in laying out the script so you can experience that in the best possible way that you can but it's you know it's there's still a bridge to gap between what the live experience of the play is where truly you can only hear one thing you'd only pay attention to one thing at a time and the script where i can go back and read you know every part of both scenes that are happening at once now now for for us saying that it is a fairly um uh normal naturalistic uh family drama i yet in reading the play had this this somehow sense of dread this like uh, this uh a word that's used in some of the quotes that start the play is is a sense of the uncanny um the, there's some quotes that the the author includes and this sense of the uncanny um seems to seems to kind of pervade the play somehow and yet when you're looking at it it is just a conversation between these this family, um, and yet somehow there is a mood, a a, uh, a a presence, a forebodingness that hangs over at least in the reading of the play for me. Yeah, so part of it is the setting that the play is imagined in, which is this pre-war apartment that's been sort of haphazardly renovated and to be to be one apartment but without much layout or structure considerations for example both floors have a front entrance you can imagine yeah. that it used to be two apartments separated by a floor, but now it's one. So they both have a front entrance, and there's things just sort of shoved into places. The kitchen is just sort of shoved in to a hallway where it sort of fits as the apartment was being renovated. It's also very monotone in the room. It's granite, maybe painted white or painted off-white through the whole thing. Add to that the idea that it, because it's an old building, things creak and drip. They're right next to the trash compactor, so there's this rumbling overtone that happens through a lot of the play. They're right next to the laundry facility, so there's buzzing and rattling from all around them. Their upstairs neighbor stomps around and makes a bunch of noise, <laughs> this sort of ominous noise from above at several points throughout the play. And so... The apartment itself is this, you use the word uncanny, which is the word Stephen Karam likes to use, this uncanny, off-putting sort of environment. Yeah, yeah. And then there's there's all these little, like, stage directions, too, that I, I, I wonder if they would carry across to a live production. Because occasionally characters will go to the upstairs window, which he notes does not, uh, the, the author notes does not have any light coming into it. It does not receive any direct sunlight. But yeah, right. it, looks it just out looks on, like, out into, like, a little interior courtyard, not, like, to the outside street or anything. Right, right. 
and occasionally there'll be stage directions that like suggest maybe the character sees a woman like a gray-haired woman walking by and when they look back they're gone and you have this this constant thudding on the on the roof um the the opening uh description of the apartment itself uh has uh, the apartment is a touch ghostly but not in a forced manner and I think that's kind of kind of the feeling that I get throughout this. It's like the whole thing is just a little a little spooky, but not really in a forced way. Right. <laughs> and really there's able... two more elements that add a lot to that as well. The first is that Bridget and Richard are newly moved into the apartment. When I stumbled earlier in the description and said that their relationship was new, that is not what I was trying to say. They're new to the apartment. They're newly moved in together. And so they're not unpacked at all to the point where they only have like a recliner upstairs, their only piece of furniture. And downstairs, Thanksgiving dinner is being had at a folding table and temporary like plastic chairs. And, yeah. yeah, right. So their their furniture has been like lost in the move or it's like stuck in Queens because of the big parades and all that. So they're not moved in at all. The apartment is empty. There's no decoration. There's no human touch to the mm-hmm. apartment for it, for the play being called The Humans. So there's that Aspect, aspect to it, which makes it a lot spookier, right? A big, empty pre-war apartment is a lot scarier than an, a pre-war apartment decorated like a home and made right. to feel like somewhere you could really nest in. This is not that place. Additionally, one of the... It's not just decorative or not just metaphorical because it, it plays a plot feature later on but it does it does carry a lot a lot of metaphorical significance through the play is that the light bulbs in the apartment are burning out one by one starting upstairs i mean it's 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 as convenient as it possibly could be without (laughs) taking away from some of the realism naturalism feel of the play in a very convenient way they burn out (laughs) one by one from the farthest away from the thanksgiving dinner right to the the one that would kind of light that part of their apartment. So the apartment is slowly getting darker and darker and harder to navigate. The only bathroom is upstairs. And so when the entire upper floor is finally in darkness, Deidre, the mother, jokingly says she's got to have a flashlight and it's like going spelunking when you've got to go use the bathroom. Yeah. (laughs) Added to that, you have the the, the added uh, difficulty that, that Momo, the grandma, is in a wheelchair. So anytime that she has to use the restroom, they have to go all the way out the front door of the basement um, up an elevator and into the front door of the upstairs. <laughs> so there's all this complication around uh, in the building as well. This lots of characters kind of leaving. The only times really that you lose track of the characters are when they're in the bathroom or on their way to the bathroom by way of the outside. So there's, there's, there's all this kind of action generated from those two split levels. I have never experienced a play. I don't think that the bathroom plays as an important a role <laughs> as this play. Yeah. It's the only one it's the only room where where any characters have any privacy from us the audience. Um they they, they occasionally try to get privacy from each other by just going to other rooms or other levels of the house. It's a very small house though, so that often backfires on them. However, when a character kind of needs to needs for a variety of reasons to retreat, they head upstairs and and go to the bathroom. (laughs) And additionally, Amy's intestinal disease 
causes her to have to be in the bathroom a lot. And Mm -hmm. on top of that, these characters are drinking and drinking and drinking. Right. And so they all have to go to the bathroom a lot. He's invented, the playwright, just as many reasons for people to have to go to the bathroom as possible. (laughs) Because in an apartment that's laid out the way he imagines it, it's a fairly easy way to get characters out of the room so that you can play scenes in different character combinations. And then have overhearing happen. Like, in, in a small apartment, it's hard to generate the the need or the necessity for a character to get out to a space that another character won't see. And that accomplishes it quite frequently to allow the characters to get upstairs to overhear what's going on. Let's return briefly to the apartment and its uncanny, spooky, ominous setting for this holiday family play. What does it do, Jackson, to your experience? I mean, neither of us have ever seen it, so it's hard to know as an audience sitting in the theater. But in in terms of reading the play, to set this family and their celebration, which at times is absolutely cheerful and joyful and very pleasant, the kind of celebration you'd be happy to attend with your family. And then at other times, it's uh, really uncomfortable and painful and the kind of celebration that you desperately hope you're not going to have this coming Thanksgiving at your house. You know, so it's got both of those features. The family experience goes up and down as a real family holiday does, but the apartment does not change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the it's. I mean, some of the necessity of it being here, I think, is is tells something about the family's relationship. Like, why isn't this this uh, Thanksgiving happening at the parents' house? Um, that is actually a house. Um, uh, and I think it tells a little bit of the story of the, the family. There, there's clear that there is some um, sadness around, especially Bridget and her parents, about not being in contact often. Um, and so this, this seems to be a moment where Bridget is kind of reaching out to her family <laughs> um, after some arguments we've, we've discovered. We discovered that they had been arguing for quite a long time about um, uh, Bridget and Richard getting married. Um, especially Deirdre has frequent uh, side comments throughout the play of like, you should probably get married and no, we're not going to go there. We already did this. We're not going to go there. So you get the idea that there's some, been some family tension recently. And so this, this invite to the new apartment with the, with the relationship that is moving to a new level of moving in together um, is kind of a, a tenuous olive branch almost and and a necessity to say yes to it is is inherent in there it is interesting and i'm not sure i thought about it much before you just said that that i'm not really sure why they're having thanksgiving in manhattan instead right. of scranton i don't know that it's ever very explicitly laid out like this you know we can't do it here because of this we had yeah. to come to manhattan for it uh, we have some clues. One of them is that because Bridget and Richard are newly moved into this, well, they're newly occupying. They're not moved in moving at all. In. They're newly <laughs> occupying this apartment. Bridget is sort of proud of where they live. And we've described it as being this sort of spooky, weird, big, poorly laid out, uh, loud <laughs> apartment. <laughs> it's not truly not that great of an apartment, although I've never lived in New York. So perhaps a New Yorker would read it and be like, that's the best apartment I've ever heard of. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I don't live in New York, so it sounds pretty terrible to me. And um, But Bridget and Richard are really 
pleased with it. And so wanting to host, wanting to show off where you live now to your parents, to your sister, there seems to be that in her. And uh, layered onto that, we know that that not having their stuff delivered and being moved in was not the plan, right? The, the moving truck broke down and got stuck in Queens. So you can imagine that this is not necessarily what they were planning on when the family agreed to come to Thanksgiving in their new apartment. The other thing that we know and we don't know till later in the play is that Deidre and Eric might have some reasons why they don't want the girls at their house in Scranton. And it has to do with this sort of major end-of-play revelation that Eric provides about uh, the things that have been going on in their marriage and the fact that they may be needing to move out of their the home that they raised the girls in. Yeah, they're in a significant, or I'm sorry, significant financial, significant, <laughs> significant financial uh, uh, problems. Both of their jobs are not um, are are not ideal. Um, uh, Deirdre's is is she's getting paid quite a bit less than uh, many of her new hired uh, co-workers are because of their special degrees, and Eric is being fired from his, um, as as we learn later on in the play. So we know that there's 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 a bunch of elements. That are that are in swing. We find out so much about this family in 90 minutes. We know they have a lake property that they're developing, and that eventually, as if the the start at the earlier parts of the play, they talk about how they're waiting for the sewer to go in, and then they can build on it. So it'll probably be another year before that happens. Well, turns out that's not actually the cause for the delay. The cause for the delay is that they've needed to sell that property to try to accrue some money back. We find out later on in the play that. The the apart or the house that they're living in, they're probably going to have to sell that too and move into an apartment in Scranton. And so that's that is something that uh, Eric and Deirdre are carrying in with them. I'm sure in the conversations before Thanksgiving, um, and 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 uh, <laughs> kind of you know whatever dressing up for an open house is happening is going to be harder to explain if they're all at home. Interestingly, although. Richard, I'm sorry, although Eric and Deidre are not the ones who live in the apartment, the sort of foreboding atmosphere that the apartment creates does mirror their experience of the Thanksgiving uh, fairly well. You get the sense when you experience uh, us only through the written word and through seeing set pictures and clips, uh, when you experience what you see of the apartment, you get the sense something, this is not a place where something good is about to happen. This is a place where something bad is about to happen. This is a place in which something is uncomfortable and tense. And the the, the knowledge that something bad is coming is the knowledge that Eric and Deidre carry in. They carry in this plan that they're going to have to tell the girls what's happened and when and how they're going to reveal that information is the subject of some of their private conversations that they have when other characters are upstairs or other characters are downstairs or they're in one of the two rooms on either side or all the different ways that Karam negotiates getting characters in and out of scenes with each other. When Eric and Deidre have those together, that's one of the things they discuss is when and how are we going to reveal this bad information? Right, right. So they're on kind of a long journey of that. There's also the 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 kind of familial element of they. So their experience of New York is this place that Grandma, that Momo, got out of. 
right? Like she was able to kind of, she started in New York. She worked her way out because she lived in a neighborhood like this. Um, she, she, she wanted to work her way out. And so she got them to Scranton. And part of it is this kind of upward mobility story of, of, uh, the middle class in America. She got them to Scranton. And then the parents are, are, uh, are are talking are are kind of sad that now their daughter has moved basically right back to where <laughs> where uh, the grandma got out of this kind of neighborhood that they're very worried about. They're worried about their, her safety. They're constantly checking the windows. They're talking about security. They want them to put blinds up so people can't be looking in. So there is definitely that wrapped up into this coming here for Thanksgiving too. Is kind of some some. Uh, kind of parental helicoptering about uh, their kids moving back into the city after having um, their family story of escaping from the city. Right. And Amy lives in Philadelphia and Bridget lives in New York. And so the, both of their daughters have moved to very large cities and they're not pleased about that aspect of it, just being large cities, the fact that Bridget lives in a flooding area in New York, etc. And then uh, layered onto all of that, I mean, we're going to say layers a lot because yeah. it's so beautifully <laughs> done in this play. Layered onto that is this incredible, Incredible story that is only told in high context language. So you, I think you really have to be with it. And if I recall, without looking it up in my script, this is uh, one of those times when there's two scenes being played at once. So you also, if you were an audience member, you have to be watching that scene of the two scenes. But Eric tells Richard, the boyfriend, a story that when Amy was a young woman interviewing for her first paralegal job, he came with her to New York to interview for that job. And my understanding, again, it's high context storytelling, so the details are not spelled out very explicitly. My understanding is that Amy was in the towers when they were hit on 2000 in, in 2001 on September 11th. That's my understanding as well. There's, I agree that it's, I mean, it's a very high context uh, written for folks who kind of know, know, know a lot about that moment or were there. Um, so it's written somewhat for a kind of a New York, New York vernacular. Um, but they, uh, yeah, they talk about her being on the 37th floor. And the other, there's like two sets of clues we get. 37th floor. He's, uh, Eric says, I was at the Dunkin' Donuts across the street because the, the balcony or the, the observation deck observation deck didn't open till nine thirty, And if I had been, and then he, his sentence cuts off and that's kind of all we know for that part. And then later on, one of the, the kind of really, I, I don't know. I don't know how to get into this. It's a big beat of the play. Eric's been having dreams about this, this uh, woman who is kind of turning around towards him in the dream. And she has. So no the, the dreams are, what what he's actually dreaming about is not revealed until later in the play. We yeah. learn throughout through that great familial writing that he's been having trouble sleeping. He's definitely been having nightmares of some sort. Something is going on. And he doesn't want to tell him what he's dreaming about. And he doesn't want to tell him what he's dreaming about. He claims he doesn't remember. Blah, 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 blah. Eventually, he's finally sort of pinioned into revealing one of the reoccurring nightmares that he's having, which is about... Well, it's yeah, it's this 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 weird kind of visionish nightmare of this woman turning around, kind of shrouded in a hood, and once she turns around, he can see that 
all of like the parts of her face that normally would make up a face are covered over in skin. Like her eyes are covered over, her mouth is covered over, her the, her ears and mouth are, are and not and nose are all covered over in like this this skin. So it's like this faceless woman that then tries to get him to enter into a tunnel. So this is about um, two thirds of the way through the play when he describes this image, and then the characters spend much of the next you know, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes of of play, teasing him about that because yep. the apartment is so spooky and there's all kinds of crazy noises and light bulbs keep going out. They all keep sort of saying, it's the faceless woman. She's right. going. And, and to his credit, Eric seems like he's taking that pretty well, the teasing. he The, the family is very... Um, very teasing oriented (laughs) as a group. They all basically use humor to deflect. And so they tease each other a lot. And, and so they tease him about this faceless woman thing over and over and over and over again. And then once all the pain of revelation of the bad news has happened, people have run off angry and upset. He finally has a real revelation himself about that dream. Yeah, he 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 pieces together some pieces of his experience that uh, that help illuminate it for him. He he's recalling to Amy um, the day that they were in New York uh, together, and uh, he's he's talking through that moment of of uh, going back and looking for her because uh, earlier we 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 he tells Richard he didn't have a cell phone then, so he's like trying to find her. And this is where we start to really really kind of get get the feeling that he's talking about the day that the towers were hit. Um, he starts talking about firemen carrying this this girl, this um, uh, woman out who looked a lot like Amy, who was wearing the same suit as Amy, and her face was kind of covered over in ash. Um, and, and, and you don't... I, I, if I'm remembering the moment correctly, he doesn't actually vocalize the connection, but the stage directions kind of call for him to realize it in himself that this is the kind of the faceless woman he's been dreaming about. So I think we should come back to that playwriting technique of not vocalizing lines uh, in, in, in the way it's published in this script, they use brackets. I want to talk about that because yeah. it's one of my, f- I love it. I love the device, but let's come back to that feature and just work through this moment still. Right, right. So he <laughs> has this revelation that this reoccurring nightmare about this faceless woman beckoning him into a tunnel may be connected to his 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 memory of a woman being carried out of the burning collapsed towers wearing the same suit that Amy had gone into the towers in with her face covered in ash i mean what a horrifying thing to see in real yeah. life and then you uh, you can understand why somebody would have nightmares about it for years but why is he having those nightmares now why is what is mm. what has come up that has caused his subconscious if if we agree with his revelation to produce this nightmare yeah it's a great question um yeah i mean certainly we know that he is afraid of losing his daughters and perhaps now we should kind of dig into 
a little bit uh, of, of what it is that he's revealing. He, he reveals to his daughters the thing that he waits until after dinner, the thing that he and Deirdre are kind of talking about, wanting to be sure that they tell their daughters is, is uh, there, I mean, there's considerable hinting that he might be some sort of sick throughout the play. He's, we know that he's been having dreams and stuff um, and not sleeping well. And what he, what he ends up confessing is that he had an affair with the teacher at the school. He's a, he's the kind of manager of grounds and also the physical ed education teacher at the school. Yeah, he's been at this Catholic private school for forever, like 28 years. I'm, I'm pulling that number out of the air from like the background of my memory. Something that like might that, be yeah. right or it might be totally wrong. But something like 28 years, long time he's been at this Catholic private school as like the maintenance guy. And then he was so popular with students and he's been around so long and he's such a great guy that they sort of created a new position for him in somewhere in the past where he would manage equipment and the weight room and be the phys ed teacher. So the school was very fond of him. But we learned that he has been fired because it being a Catholic private school, there's a code of morality and his affair violated that code of morality. So they were able to fire him and they were able to fire him only a few years before he would have qualified for his pension. Yeah. Yeah. They were able to take the pension away. So that is, there's, there's two big revelations that he's sharing with his daughters in this moment. A, that he's had, that he had an affair and that somehow they're still working as a family. They've managed to work it out. They've been talking to father Quinn, uh, the, the, the pastor in their town. Um, and, uh, and so there's that revelation. And then there's the pieces falling into place that without the pension and without a job now, He's having to make a lot of different financial de decisions. They are starting to make a lot of different financial decisions. Right. He's working like part time at a Walmart. In and a sort town of heartbreakingly, over. yeah, he tells us that he's working in a town over because he doesn't want any of the kids to see him working at the Walmart. Oof. That right. is a painful, painful moment. Um, yeah. And there's, you know, they have a lot of expenses. I mean, they, they're taking care of Eric's mother, who there's a significant financial burden to that. Really all through the play, even up to and past this revealing moment, that Deidre and Eric are fairly concerned about money. In a way that it seems to me, although it's never very explicitly said, it seems to me that both of the daughters are left a little bit confused it seems like some of the things that the daughters talk about, like, well, why don't you get a nurse for Momo? Uh, you know, when's the last time you went on vacation? What about the lake house? It seems as if the daughters are used to their parents living in a, you know, sort of a perfectly nice middle class income and not talking and worrying about money all the time. When yeah. both of the daughters get shut down because their parents say, that's too expensive or this and that, you don't understand, we got to be careful about money, blah, blah, blah. It seems like both of the daughters are a little bit confused by that. And you learn why when that revealing moment happens. He's lost his job, lost his pension, working part-time. They've really had to tighten their belts. They've had to sell the lake house property, probably going to have to sell their house and move into an apartment. Mm-hmm. And, and, I mean... <laughs> What what Jacob just described, that's enough to have some stressful nightmares, and it's certainly enough to be worried that the secret that you have been holding away from your family is going to result in something, uh, in, in losing your relationship with those children. Right. So, in the um there's this thanks there's this moment at the Thanksgiving dinner where they it's like a family tradition, they like 
have a, a, a like a peppermint candy pig that they stuff into this bag and then they they break it as they all say something that they're thankful for. It's this very lovely little family tradition and Richard the new the boyfriend gets in on it and anyway, all that to say that when Eric the dad does his part of it, he says something that once you know the end of the play is very clearly pointed, which is something like you know, I this family is so great. We we love this family so much and I hope that there's nothing any of us could ever do <laughs> to ruin the un conditional love of this family. Yeah, yep. <laughs> Very worried about losing his family over this thing that he has done. Interestingly, we only learn we learned that as you said Jackson, in the past he and Deidre have worked through that, have worked through the affair and their marriage to me it never seems like it's on the rocks. Yeah, it seems like there's, I mean, there, there's there's an undercurrent, right? There's an undercurrent that is accessed quickly in the later part of the play of, of anger between the two um, as as the drinks do, doth flow as they, are, as they do in family kitchen dramas. Um, uh, the, the two of them kind of begin to push each other's buttons a little bit more and you can tell that there's there's some anger between them. But earlier on in the play, especially... There's 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 a really beautiful moment, and it's the moment that is often in the trailers. They sing the parting glass as a family, as blessing as a blessing over the house, and it's clear that this is a part of their tradition. And and the 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 verse that um that Eric sings is a is a I, you know I have a a pretty girl in town that's going to that I'm going to spend time with is the verse. And there the exchange between Deirdre and 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 him is both telling, but also when I've seen it played in the in the couple scenes I've I've seen kind of touching. Um, her response is that better be me, and then the song continues. Um, and and when you know their history, I mean <laughs> that better be me has that weight of the affair in it, but also it seems to be in, within the nature of their kind of teasing family as well. So I want to do my best to try to summarize how this play ends as we're talking about this dream because it's crucially connected. The the revelation of the affair, the lost job, the lost lake house, the moving into an apartment happens very, very near the end of the play. In fact, it's it's almost so near to the end of the play that you wonder if we're not like past the climax, if this had any kind of formal structuring to it. It's almost denouement. Uh, and so... Eric reveals it. Everybody's angry and upset by everything that's happening. Momo is also having a terrible fit. Everybody's drunk. A car has come to bring the family home. Um, so the apartment is is very much emptying out one by one. The lights are all, have slowly all flickered out, leaving Eric sort of trapped downstairs with an emergency lamp um, in the dark. He opens the door, the downstairs door to the hallway, letting in a flood of light. Now, we've described the dream already, right, that this faceless woman beckons him into a tunnel. And earlier in the play, as he's confessing that dream, Richard says, because Richard's taken some psychology classes and is sort of really into dream interpretation, Richard says, hey, next time, why don't you go into the tunnel? And Eric tries to make a joke of it, and and Richard's sort of serious. Like, no, 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 next time, go into the tunnel and see what happens. Now, this is real life, we think, not a dream. Eric's trapped downstairs in this pitch black apartment. All the lights have blown out. He's tried the fuses but can't get him back on. All he's got is this emergency lamp, which he loses in the dark. He manages to get that door to the hallway open and prop it open with a chair. 
and the stage directions say it becomes sort of tunnel-like. Now, Eric all throughout has been struggling with, I think we were reasonable to interpret it as anxiety, as panic attacks, as uh, severe trouble keeping you know his heart rate down, his emotions in check. He's really struggling. Every little thing scares him. The noise scares him. So he's terrified by this moment in the dark, realizes that something has happened to him, sees the door to the outside that is supposed to be reminiscent of a tunnel, and he exits into the hallway, and the door shuts, leaving the stage in utter darkness, and that's the end of the play. Yeah. It's 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 quite the end. Um, <laughs> it is quite the end. <laughs> uh, because, I mean, so so we, we've talked about the connection that he makes, right, with the, with the story of Amy and him at the at the World Trade Center when it was when it was um, uh, the planes hit it, and he's he's made that kind of that connection point, right? Like he he internally has has made the connection. Oh my goodness, this is this is kind of tying together. This is an event back back from a long time ago that I just haven't processed. And when that happens, the floodgates kind of open a little bit. And he doesn't really, he's scared by the noises of the trash compactor in the basement. There's this like, again, really uncanny kind of clackety clink, clackety clink that starts happening. And it builds an intensity and builds an intensity. And what happens is a, a tenement of the building just walks by with their grocery cart full of laundry um, in the hallway beneath. So all of these like things that seem scary uh, end up being pretty mundane things like machinery or neighbors or something like that. But nonetheless, they have this visceral effect on Eric, who goes through essentially, a, a, as you said, a panic attack on stage to these things. So the the choice at the end is 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 just interesting to to lean into that when he knows his family is kind of waiting for him outside. He kind of leans into this um, need to pursue and push the dream or push the push on the pressure point of this anxiety and, and keep walking forward into it to try to figure it out a little bit. The last interaction before this moment that Eric has had with anybody is with Bridget. And she has, in, in the wake of this terrible news and this terrible admission that Eric makes, she and Richard have to get out of the apartment because of the terrible thing that they're they're enduring they're encountering. So they they leave and we don't see Bridget again until this moment. She finally comes back in and she says that she is going to the van is here to take all of you home. It's taking them to the train station because they're too drunk to drive. And Bridget says, "I'm going to ride with you to the train station." And Eric says, "Thank you." And then she's gone. And then Eric has this moment where he collects his things and exits through this tunnel-like door into the hallway. And that's the end of the play. So it puts an awful lot of emphasis on this two-line, one line from Bridget, one line from Eric, interaction between the two of them. And I'm not 100% sure what to make of it. I'm not sure exactly what is resolved or carried on in that relationship in that exchange but the exchange itself is clearly important it is yeah i think some of it, it it's it is the, the end of the play is the thing that you like continue to talk about at dinner afterwards right or at at, at wherever you go to talk about plays after you see the play because it is there is a lot of room for interpretation around it it doesn't end with a nice uh, bow um, one thing to draw from Bridget being the last person he talks to, though, is is back when Bridget left, there's a stage direction that I think is pretty telling. 
Um, Bridget exits. This is worse than if she yelled at Eric. Richard stops Eric from following her, and then Richard goes out after her. Um, and I think that is the kind of telling thing. That's, that kind of ties together all these different pieces of Eric around his fear of losing, especially his daughters, as a result of this. Um, she she didn't turn and yell at him. She didn't stay engaged. Uh, she, ex exactly what he feared would happen happened, and she left. Um, and so he's going through the, the very real effects of that, of seeing his daughters leave as a result of this information. And then right kind of in the midst of it, as he's going through this panic attack, she calls down the stairs and says, I guess I'll ride in the car with you to the station. And the right. kind of it seems like if there is a decision being made or a step being taken in some direction that would signify that the journey that we've been on for this 90 minutes, that the, the part that we get to experience with the Blake family is coming to an end. It is this decision of Bridget's to engage again. Yeah. Instead of just running away, waiting till her family leaves, coming back to the apartment and never speaking to them again because of the horror of what Eric has done, she's not only going to re-engage with the family, but again that night is going to say, I'm going to ride with you to the train station. And for what possible other reason would that be than that we need to talk? Right. We're not, least... I'm not going to just run away from this. This family isn't just going to split and be done over this. We're going to talk. Yeah, it's a it's a commitment to the the tension again, um, and I and I and a way to interpret uh, uh, Eric's actions at the end then is leaning into that hope, going into the tunnel, getting past the scary thing, the fear of losing, to go through the tunnel and continue to engage his family this way. Um, that's that that's that's the hopeful way, I guess, to end the play. <laughs> yeah, well, and and. The idea that Eric exits through a tunnel of light out of the darkness does seem like hopeful imagery, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so I mean, it, it is it is it is a moment that is confusing. I had to go back and reread it a couple times to be like, am I, am I like getting the full the full weight of this moment? And I think it is intentionally supposed to be that way. I mean, the door kind of pseudo magically overcomes the weight of the chair to close. <laughs> on the on the stage for us. So it is a moment of some kind of magic on stage. Another moment where the apartment gets this beat of uncanniness for us to to engage with. Um so it's it's left a little a little ambiguous. It's a I'm not totally sure. I'd really I mean obviously I really want to see the play. I really want to be the audience experiencing this crazy little piece of theater. One of the things that I'm interested in in going through as an audience member is the experience of being left in the darkness because the characters escape the darkness of the apartment, but the audience doesn't. And it's not just like, Oh, the play ends. The audience is left in darkness for, uh, something that's supposed to be an, an experience they have. It says, this is the final stage directions. Eric exits into the hallway and out of sight of a, a very long beat. The propped open door begins to slowly close entirely on its own. The weight of the chair can no longer hold it open. The door clicks shut, rendering the space a deep, true black. So Eric leaves, and the audience is still stuck in the apartment. We don't get to exit the hallway door into the light. We're left in this apartment looking out on what the 
characters have escaped to. And then the door closes, leaving us in darkness. Yeah. And I'm, I'm interested in what that experience is like to be the watcher left in the dark. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause you're, you're, there's, there's so many things that are kind of clued into the, you wonder if there's anything left. You, I, I wonder if the cast can make like, you know, van door shutting noises from off stage as you hear them leaving or something like that. What, what is the experience into the last moment of this play? I'm, I'm curious of that as well. So we teased it earlier, but I'd love to talk about the way that Stephen Karam uses brackets to communicate unspoken dialogue. So what this looks like is on the printed page of the script, there'll be lines that are just in standard, non-italicized, you know, with a dialogue prompt. So it'll say uh, Eric and then regular old dialogue. And then there'll be in brackets more dialogue. And the beginning of the play notes communicates that this bracketed dialogue is not spoken. It's communicated non-verbally somehow. So we've already teased to this moment. So you already know Eric has a line late in the play. There was gray in her eyes and mouth even. It was like her whole and then bracketed face was gone. So she, he would not say face was gone out loud, but it is communicated somehow. It is experienced by the characters. That's a more pointed way to use it. They also just, Stephen Karam also just uses it to, to clip off the last word at the end of sentences, which is a really common way for dialogue writers to think about, you know, sentences when people... When people speak, the ends of their sentences typically trail off into non-verbality. In the non-verbality is not a real word. That's, <laughs> it right? is That's now. Not, I just made it <laughs> into being non-verbal. Sentences often don't end with a nice period bow tie like they do in writing when people speak. So if you want dialogue to sound natural, the ends of sentences tend to head towards non-verbality. Mm-hmm. And you and it uses it as a way to to. Um prompt action instead of like movement instead of the words there are there's like occasionally a sentence that is supposed to be wrapped up in a nonverbal way um or or delivered in a nonverbal way so with some sort of hand motions or at least in the reading it really helped me get a really visceral sense of what the actors might be emoting in those moments like if you if you do the extra step of saying how would I as an actor or how would I encourage an actor to emote these things rather than actually say them out loud? That, that really welcomed me into some of the emotion of the writing as well uh, in, in my reading of it. And I love it because it's a way of the playwright helping an actor to know what to communicate and not how to communicate it. Yeah. Sometimes it feels like playwrights step on a character's toes when they'll write a stage or an actor's toes. I mean, when they'll write a stage direction like, you know, he waves at her. The wave shows how much he loves her and that he was forced <laughs> to say goodbye. Right. <laughs> and instead, I mean, that's that's an act. That's a playwright telling an actor, this is how you should say or communicate this thing. But the role of a playwright, in my mind, oftentimes, is to tell actors what to say, not how to say it. So nonverbal communication is a huge part of human communication. So a playwright has to be aware and live in the nonverbal communication of a script because that's communication as well. That's what the playwright is structuring as well as the structuring of the story. So I love the idea that a playwright will give an actor a line. The line is nonverbal. So for example, uh, this is an exchange. Eric says to Richard, 
well, I'm sorry if, and then Richard says in brackets, so he doesn't actually say it, it's nonverbal, it's fine. Then Eric continues, it makes you wonder if that kind of faith we grew up with, blah, blah, blah. So Richard has a whole line there that's a nonverbal line. And I just love that the playwright didn't write like, Richard waves, it's fine. Yeah. He just lets the actor decide, this is the line, you've got to do this line somehow without saying it. And lets the actor play with the how, giving him the what. Right. It, it, it makes a freedom for the actor to get to figure out what vernacular is. And it seems like that's the, 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 one of the big comments from this play, from the actors and the interviews that I've watched of them, is that somehow the play achieves this real-life style of communication. And I think this is one of the big things that it does to do that. It provides, just as you're saying, these, these lines to allow actors to do what they want with them physically with. And that sort of interaction prompts us to remember, oh yeah, for the most part, I don't, I don't use, <laughs> I often don't use words to communicate to the people I'm around. It's facial expressions, it's gestures, and then I'm off on a completely separate sentence that if you were to read it, wouldn't make sense unless you justified it somehow like this with, with like bracketed or italicized over, over uh, reaching stage directions. Yeah, I mean, you know, psychologists, sociologists love to say that more than half of human communication is nonverbal. So for a playwright to really live in the nonverbal communication and and be willing to lend nonverbal communication the weight of lines, you know, it's a way for the, the playwright is saying, it. my words are not so much the important part. It's what is being communicated. And sometimes my words are how something gets communicated. But oftentimes, it's not my words. It's the actor's living, breathing body and the way that they interact with people that does the communication work of the play. Yeah, it's ultimately a really collaborative mood or mood. They're really for, humble, right? Yeah, yes. yeah. <laughs> the playwright is just like, look, most of my words are not what where the play is really happening. The play is really <laughs> happening in the bodies and faces and voices of the actors. I think that about wraps up, wraps up the amount of time that we have to talk about The Humans by Stephen Karam. This is a, a great play. I, I hadn't read it at all yet um, and, uh, when, I, when I read it for this play, and I, I was very glad to read it. I'm also excited. I, I, I should have brought this up in the context. They're at least starting the phases of a film for The Humans as well. Uh, they started it in late 2019, so I'm sure it's been delayed a bit, what with the, the world as it is. But uh, I believe sometime in the next couple of years there will be a film production of this play, and I will certainly be looking forward to watching it because it, it's a it's a powerhouse of a play yeah that'll be really cool to see how the highly theatrical elements of the set the sound the experience of being an audience viewing these multiple scenes mm -hmm. this whole dollhouse set how that translates to film that'll be very interesting for the play being a, a very normal kitchen sink drama and now that we've gotten all the way to the end and lots of you aren't even <laughs> listening anymore it's probably a good time for us to say like we're not trying to insult the play by saying it's a normal kitchen sink drama it's, no. it's just a way to talk about what it is it's it's that's great i mean it's it's a I delightful mean, beautiful wonderful play so much of the great 
literature, dramatic literature that's been created over the past 20, 30, 40, 50 years would be normal kitchen sink drama, proof, right? Uh, rabbit hole. I mean, uh, anything O'Neill, Long Day's August Journey, Osage County, yeah, Tennessee I mean, Williams, Wendy Wasserstein, they're, they're all writing these Stephen Caram's The Humans is in some really good company <laughs> yeah. in being sort of standard <laughs> psychological drama. It just, we were talking about that in difference of Noel Coward's Private Lives and uh, especially Jackie Sibley's <laughs> Drury's Fairview. <laughs> Right. Just right. to wrap it all back around. <laughs> Bring it all together. It's uh, an incredible play, truly, truly. Uh, I hope that I hope that I get to see it someday. I hope that you all get to see it. Many of you probably have. And if you have, we would love to keep talking to you about this play. If you've read it, if you've seen it, if you've been a part of a production, we'd love to keep talking about the humans with you. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the username at Podcast. We also have a Gmail, noscriptpodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on any of those sites, and we'd love to get to continue talking about this play with you. Reading scripts can often be a lonely endeavor, and we've read this one. So if you read it and want to talk about it to someone... Hit us up on any of those sites. And if you would like to recommend this podcast to someone, that'd be a huge help. You can send them to Google Podcasts. That's not right. Google Play? <laughs> Google. I've lost I've lost it. It's Whatever gone. the Google thing for podcasts is. <laughs> as well as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and where we're hosted on Podbean. We also post a link to the new episode every Monday on Facebook. So if you're connected to our Facebook, you can check out the links there. So until next time, when we're talking about another one of theater's best plays, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for listening to No Script, the podcast. We'll see you.